The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Uh, my name is Justin. I'm the pastor here at Sacred City Church. I wanted to welcome you this morning, and I wanted to fill you in real quick. Um, Sacred City, we are a gospel-centered missional church. That means um, we desire to impact our culture, influence our culture, kind of from the inside. We want to kind of get inside there with God, with our the gospel-changed identities and gospel-changed heart and see God do something on the inside of a city. We want to see unbelievers come to believe in Jesus. We want to see people who have been in the church for a long time um, remember the gospel and, and live out of a gospel-changed heart and not just a religious kind of identity. And the other thing that um, it means for us to be a missional church is that we are a church planting church. So we have um, small little churches that gather all across the the Quad Cities. We call those missional communities that meet in people's homes throughout the week. Um, They live life together. They gospel each other. They study the word together. They pray together. They serve um, a people in a place in the Quad Cities. Uh, My missional community is on mission towards world relief. Um, and that's kind of the breeding ground. We start these little missional communities and we hope they multiply and multiply and multiply. And then out of those, we hope to plant churches and sacred city is part of the acts 29 network, which is a church planting network. You can't be a part of our network. If you just want to plant one church, you've got to plant a church that plans on and prepares to plant multiple churches. So that's what we're committed to at Sacred City. We're not going to build one big building and just keep, you know, keep growing larger. We're going to keep planting churches. And in order to do that, the bottom line in order to plant churches is you have to make disciples and you have to train men. Men to lead churches, men to plant churches, men to um, make more disciples, men to lead their family. And that's something that's desperately lacking in our culture today. That men have prolonged this thing called adolescence that we invented, Western idea, this adolescence where you have this permission to be a fool for about a decade, right? We've invented that. Supposed to go from childhood to maturity, not childhood to, you know, a decade of video games to real life, right? We've invented this. And what's happened, I don't know if you saw the statistics, the New York Times came out with an article this week that said um, for the first time in a long time, more people are dying from suicide than car accidents. And one of the leading groups isn't the young people that people thought it was, but it's middle-aged men, people my age, people who are missing from the church, people that are overly medicated, people who are overly sexualized, people who they're absent from the church and they, their soul desperately needs connection to the God of the Bible, the God of all creation, but they're out there living their life and they're in constant immaturity. And we desire to be a church that raises up men to go out and lead their families and love one wife and lead emotional community and plant churches. And the only way for us to do that is to continue to pour into young men and to raise up young men to do that job. So one of the things that we do around here 
is we let young guys, and I, I, like I'm 33, so I know I'm everybody like, what are you talking about? Younger than me, guys, we, we open up the pulpit, even though how much I love to preach the word, and I, I, you know, they have to kind of pry my fingers off this pulpit. But we open up the pulpit, we, we allow young guys to get up here and to get their teeth wet and to learn what it means to carry a burden for a body and to get in and exegete scripture and study and say, what does God want for this body and what's this text saying? So we give young guys chances to get up at bat. And we're going to do that for the life of this church. We're going to get young guys interested in preaching, interested in planting, interested in making disciples, interested in the word of God. And we're, and I'm going to step out of the way and I'm going to give them opportunities. And we get a, a chance this morning to let um, our pastoral intern, Samuel Schmidt, get up here and take a swing. And I'm excited for it. I see this young man's heart for the gospel. I've seen his heart for God. I've seen how God's matured him. Um, over the past year and a half, the guy came to us with like hippie hair down to here, man. I was like, who is this guy, right? Big sweeping ponytail. Now he's got a gorgeous looking comb over. He's got khakis on. Like, wow, man. This is, uh, no, but, but really, I'm, I'm joking with him. I love this brother. I'm excited. I know God's got a word. I know God's going to speak through him. And I pray that we would all... Um, the dangerous thing that we can do is when a young guy gets up here to preach, even when I'm preaching, a young guy, we can kind of sit back there and go, well, this, he's just excited. He's just a young buck. You know, I, he doesn't have the life experience I do. He doesn't have the, you know, the wisdom that I do. He doesn't have, he hasn't gone through the pain that I have. He's gone through the, you're right, he hasn't. But he's not preaching his own experience. He's not standing on his own experience saying, this is what you do because this is what I've done. He's preaching the word of God that says, this is what it says. Okay, there's a big difference. You can go to anywhere and hear a practical sermon. You can go to you can go to you can flip on reruns of Oprah and hear a practical sermon. Okay? This is the preaching of God's word, God speaking through a young man. All right? And I'm thankful for him. I'm thankful for him. He's a gift to our body, he's a gift to me personally, and I'm excited to hear what God says through him. All right? So I'm going to pray again. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you for this young man. I ask that you would anoint him from on high. I ask that his words would be your words. Father, I ask you to fill him with your spirit. Give him the boldness and the confidence to pro- proclaim your word, that your word divides soul and spirit, joints and marrow, that it convicts the attitudes and the thoughts of our heart. Father, we are crooked stri- sticks, and I ask that you would make us straight this morning. And I ask with, with Sam, Sam's a crooked stick as well, I ask that you would draw a perfectly straight line with that crooked sw- stick this morning, Father, that your word is true and that your word is powerful. Change lives in this room this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Justin. Well, you'll notice, well, first of all, obviously, um, I'm up here instead of Justin, so that's one thing out of the ordinary. But also, um, today, we did not have a scripture reading right after the the worship set um, like we typically do. And that's just simply because we have a lot of ground to cover. So I'm going to try to incorporate, I'm going to incorporate that. We're going to be in the Bible um, the whole time. Um, And I'm going to try to provide some commentary. Um, We've got a couple of moments in this passage where you wonder what the heck's going on here. So I I hope to give a little bit of clarity and insight there. So um, if you get your Bible, your smartphone, um, tablet. Uh, otherwise, we have Bibles in the back there. If you want to follow along, um, we will be in Genesis 31 um, today. So, quick show of hands here. Um, and, and Catholics and Lutherans are really going to hate this. I'm actually going to make you raise your hands in church. Um, but show of hands, um, who here wakes up on a daily basis? <clears throat> excuse me. With the reality? <clears throat> excuse me. 
of having a task to accomplish that attributes to the well-being of your family or your future. I'm saying raise your hand if you got a job, you go to school, you volunteer, you do something productive, right? Okay, okay, okay. Fantastic. Go ahead, put your hands down. Now, if you didn't raise your hand, it's because one of three reasons. You, you are either, one, an infant, and you can't cognitively understand my, my voice right now. Um, two, you are, uh, you, you've paid your dues, and you're in a season of retirement. Um, and three is not so pretty, but it's because you're lazy and you're sluggard, um, and, and you're just simply in rebellion against what God has created to, you to do. So I'm going to come right after you guys this morning. Um, I think this is important. Um, Paul in 2 Thessalonians 3 says, if you don't work, you don't eat. Simple as that. And his, his, his words get even harsher in 1 Timothy 5. He says, if you're not providing for your family, you've denied the faith and you're worse than an unbeliever. What we see here is that there's a unique bond between man and work. Now, if you look back to the Garden of Eden, God created man and he breathed life into Adam. And he says, Hey, I got a job for you. I want you to tend to the garden. I want you to make sure it flourishes. So, and this is even before sin. So Adam's got a responsibility. God created Adam to carry a responsibility, carry a burden, even before sin entered the world. Um, And so we can see that God designed us all as human beings, as image-bearing human beings. I think my beard's getting up in this. God has created us to carry a burden, to, to have responsibility. So if you're one of those people who didn't raise your hand, this is my rebuke to you. You need to go out and get a job. You need to go to school. You've got to do something productive to benefit your family, your future, and society. Um, this, this is your next step in discipleship. So keep that in mind. You go, go do something. And for the majority of us um, who did raise your hand, I think we can all agree that work is hard. Work is hard. We have difficult bosses that make us mad. We work long hours doing meaningless tasks. We find ourselves getting burned out. We get upset when things don't go right. And it's easy to compromise our integrity for the bottom line. I get it. I get it. Work is hard. It's even harder to work as if you believe the gospel. It's hard to stay humble and work alongside an idiot boss. It's hard to stick in it for the long haul. And it's hard to get along with others when you disagree on things. Now, here at Sacred City, we believe the gospel has the power to change every aspect of our life. has the power to redeem every area of our life and call it sacred. Now, you're probably wondering, how, how in the world does the gospel change the way we work? And today, as we look through the story of Jacob, we're going to explore what it looks like to work if we believe God is our boss... And that our job has eternal significance. So go ahead and open up um, Genesis 30, uh, verse 25 here. Now we've been in Genesis for quite some time. Um, We've got about 70 verses to cover today. So... Uh, hang with me here and, and we'll get through it. Uh, and over the last, last few weeks, we've, we've been getting a glimpse of Jacob and his whole life. We've seen him, what he's like as a, as a family man. We've seen what he's like as a, an entrepreneur. Um, and now we get to see what he's like as a worker. Um, and as I think about Jacob, I personally get irritated with him. Um, he's a deceiver. He's a lie. He's a cheat. We've seen that heaven's been closed to him. Um, he seems to be one of those guys that he's always got something to prove Um, And he seems to have a lust problem because he's got four wives. Um, He keeps making the same mistakes or similar mistakes over and over and over again. And I I think, in my mind, I'm thinking he should know better by now. He should have this figured out. When will he stop being so stubborn? 
But the way that I feel about him isn't necessarily the way that God feels about him. We can easily get frustrated with people when they seem as if they're slow to learn. But what God is doing and what God has been doing over the last couple of chapters is showing us that Jacob is in the middle of a long, slow process. We ourselves are in that very same long, slow process of becoming more like God as we put our faith in Jesus and the gospel. And so what we are, are seeing from the story today is a man who is far from God, who is now walking with God, and now we get to see some of the fruit from that. So that takes us to chapter eight, 28 here. Um, God made a promise. Sorry, I'll backtrack. This is, we're going to set a foundation here. God made a promise back in 28. Um, he, he appeared to Jacob in a dream and he said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now, Jacob has not forgotten this interaction. It's hard to forget if God appears to you in a dream. Jacob, this is lingering in the back of the head. It's like, um, I think like parents, maybe you can relate to this. You tell your kid, hey, uh, on the next report card, if you get all A's, we're going to go out. We'll treat you to ice cream. Months go by. Parents forget about the whole deal that they made. But the kid, he's like, what what flavor am I going to get? What flavor am I getting? And that's what's motivating motivating them to work. And so as soon as that kid gets that report card back, he's got all A's. He comes up to mom and says, mom, chocolate chip cookie dough. And mom's like, what are you talking about? But the kid the whole time is remembering the promise that parents made. And, and Jacob is just like that kid. He's, he's remembering the promises that God gave him. And so this is the lens in which Jacob is viewing the whole story for today. So I'm going to pray real quick again. Um, you pray for me. I'll pray for you. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be here with us. God, we know that you are here with us. Uh, we ask that, that your spirit would move to, to allow us to hear the word of the gospel, Lord God, that, that you, would, you would be using my, my mouth and using my mind, um, God, to communicate the good news of Jesus Christ and how this affects every area of our life. So we ask, Father, that you would, you would be with us, your spirit would be among us, and that we would um, acknowledge you in this place. In your name, amen. All right, so now we're actually going to get to it. Um, 30, chapter 30, verse 25. <clears throat> as soon as Rachel had borne Joseph, had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wages and my children for whom I've served you that I may go, uh, that I may go for, you know, the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Now name your wages and I will give it. Now <clears throat> name your wages. We've heard that before a couple chapters back. Laban says that same exact thing to Jacob, and Jacob volunteers himself for seven years of, of hard work in order to get Rachel's hand in marriage. Now, by, when, when Laban's using this, this language, it's, we're, he's doing it so we can see that he's still that sleazy businessman who's trying to take advantage of his family. He hasn't changed at all, and, and he would honestly do anything to make a buck. And right now, business is booming for Laban. He's, he would be a Fortune 500 company. His, his flocks have turned into huge flocks. He's got lots of property. He's got lots of employees. And he's learned that, that this has happened because 
divination. Now, this is kind of our first what's going on here moment. Um, Divination is actually um, the act of consulting with demons. So we've got this witchcraft voodoo daddy going on here, and he's he's talking to demons. Demons tell him, "Hey, it's Jacob who's who's making you successful." And so Laban wants to do everything he can to keep Jacob on his payroll. So let's jump back to to verse twenty nine. Jacob said to him, "You yourself know how I have served you, and how your livestock has fared me." Fared with me, for you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? Jacob here reminds Laban of how hard he has worked for him, and he has paid his dues to Laban. Now, Jacob declines the offer of the raise, and it makes it very clear that he wants to move out and start his own family off, because at this point, Jacob basically owns nothing. Now, we also see here that Jacob is affirming what Laban has been... Jacob affirms that Laban has been benefiting from having him around. But it was not Jacob, but the Lord who is doing all the blessing. Now, this is a big moment for Jacob. We see he's starting to, starting to come around. He says, it's not me. It's not me who, who's given you all the riches. It's, it's the Lord who's blessed me. And, I, and so I'm a blessing to you. And so... Jacob's basically giving credit where credit is due. It's, it's exciting. We start to see a, a heart change going on with him. And, and we see this, uh, and how he's doing it is, what he's basically doing is evangelizing to his demon-worshipping father-in-law. Um, and we see over the last 20 years of working for a very selfish, oppressive, and greedy father-in-law boss, God has been teaching Jacob how to walk with God through his troubles and afflictions. Now let's go to 31. He said... Laban says, what shall I give you? And Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pass your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not spotted, that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted as stolen. And Laban says, good, let it be as you've said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted. Everyone that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob. And Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Now, in this passage, in this chunk right here, they aren't negotiating a new deal here. What they're doing is they're working out the back wages that Laban owes Jacob. And normally, in this time, um, the shepherd, at at point of hire, 20% of the flock would be theirs. That would be their wages for working for their master. And as they would leave... Um, the master would give them that gift um, to, to help them get started and establish their family. And so what Jacob is asking for is actually a very, very small compensation for the last 20 years of his faithful, hardworking service to Laban. And, and commentators say that, it, that it, in that place in the world, it would be very rare um, that abnormally colored animals or spotted, speckled, striped animals would make up 20% of the herd. So Jacob is actually asking for a very small amount um, from his father-in-law. 
And we also see here um, some, some irony that Jacob, the deceiver, the one who, who tricked his father into getting the birthright of the firstborn, is now saying that he's an honest and trustworthy man. He's, he's calling into account his, his integrity. So it's, it's clear that God has been at work in his heart. It's another evidence that God has been doing something to change him for good. And so after Laban and Jacob agreed on, on his uh, departing gift, Laban pulls a fast one on him again. He takes all of, Laban takes all of the stri- striped and spotted and speckled la- lambs and goats and t- puts them out on a three days journey with his sons. So Jacob goes out to the field only to find white sheep. He's got nothing to show for his hard work at this point. He's basically starting from scratch. And so at this moment, we see the wickedness of Laban's heart. We see how this greed and envy has turned his heart into basically a rock. It's stone. There's no, he's got no emotions. Because look at this. First of all, Jacob was a good worker. Jacob worked hard. He, he never stole anything from him. He always showed up to work on time. And this is how Laban treats a good worker. He's not treating him very well. Okay, and then take into account this, that, that Jacob is Laban's son-in-law. This is the man who's putting food on the table for Laban's daughters. So, so Laban is treating his son-in-law, the guy who's providing for his family, poorly. And so they, they basically don't have any food to eat. And then, and then to make it worse, we're talking about Laban's the grandfather of Jacob's kids. Grandpa Laban doesn't care if his kids are going to starve. We can see that something is wrong with this dude. Something has, has gone awfully wrong in his heart. Let's jump back into to verse 37 here. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places, where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks. And so the flocks brought forth stripes, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the, the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. What the heck? (laughs) Jacob, dude, he's off his rocker here, at least in our eyes. He's taking sticks and he's cutting them and and marking them so they'd be striped and spotted and speckled. Basically, he's he's making the sticks how he'd want his sheep to look. And he puts those sticks in the water trough so so the livestock, as they came to drink, would visualize stripes and speckles and spots. And as they're breeding, he's hoping that as they look at these sticks, that they would produce striped and speckled and spotted animals. This, this doesn't make sense to us in the Western culture. Um, doesn't make sense at all. But what, what Jacob is actually doing here is called sympathetic, mad, sympathetic magic. Um, it's very, very common those days in that pagan society. And what sympathetic magic is, is it's the belief that you can influence something based on its relationship or resemblance to another thing. So he's, he's making these sticks, how he wants his animals to look, hoping that they would look at those animals, or the animals look at the sticks and produce speckled and spotted offspring. And what we see here 
is not one of Jacob's finest moments, but we see that he's been living under the influence of his father-in-law. This is the man who's been talking to demons. And Jacob has picked up some bad habits. And nowhere in the Bible is magic condoned. Actually, there's a lot of um, scripture to, to prevent or to, to speak against this type of magic. But, but we see how Jacob, rather than going to God in prayer, takes things into his own hands and uses magic. Does this sound familiar to anyone? God's not doing what I want him to do, or, or maybe this is too small of a thing to take it to God. I'm just going to take care of it on my own. <clears throat> How many times have you experienced hurt and pain, and rather than taking it to God to find comfort and healing, you've kept it to yourself, you've suppressed it? Or you've turned to mindless activities such as video games or, or watching TV, or even you've gone to, a, to the bottom of bottle to help you deal with or forget all your problems. We do the same exact thing Jacob has done. And after Jacob gets a few multicolored animals, Jacob becomes the first genetic engineer of the Bible. And he produces a strong and healthy flock of multicolored animals. It's very exciting for him. So um, let's jump here to starting 31. Now Jacob... Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what our father he has gained, all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him as, uh, with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where, where, his flocks was, where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with the favor he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock were spotted. And if he said, the stripes shall be your wages, then all the, bore, all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and molted. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted and molted. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Now Jacob is seen here that he's unwelcome. His brother-in-laws have been... overtaken by the jealousy and envy that Justin taught about last week. And it has infected all of their relationships. Jacob is starting to feel threatened by Laban and his brother-in-law, and he feels as if it's time to leave. But this time, it's God who is telling him to go. Now, picture this. Real quick here. Jacob, imagine he's standing out in the middle of the field. He's got all of his sheep. He's got all his possessions. His bags are packed. He's got all of his servants, all the camels. And he, he tells Rachel and Leah to meet him out there. And he's like, ladies, <clears throat> ladies, it's time to go. They didn't see this coming. They thought everything was peachy keen. And he's saying, hey, we got to go. We got to get out of here. Now, this is not easy conversation. Not easy at all. 
and I know this because I've actually done this once. Um, I graduated from UNI um, maybe two years ago. I don't really remember. Two years ago, I felt that God was calling me down to Quad Cities to be part of Sacred City Church. And about the time that I was getting ready to, to leave, I had been engaged for about a month. And, and my, my wife now, um, she had a year left of school at UNI. And I had to convince her that it was good to go to the Quad Cities. That, it, that God was calling me down there and I needed to respond to him and go down there. And, and here, here's my fiance, or my, my, wife, my, my wife now. Um, she's a Jesus-loving girl. She wants to serve God with all her heart, all her strength, all her mind. And it was incredibly difficult to tell her to let me go so I could go down to the Quad Cities. Now, it was incredibly difficult with a Jesus-loving girl. Now, imagine how difficult it would be to be standing in front of two wives who you don't know if they know God yet. And tell them, hey, honey, we got to go. Or well, honeys. Hey, honeys. <laughs> we got to go. We got to go. You got to leave behind everything you know. We got to follow God. He's going to take us back to my hometown. Um, I don't know really what's going to happen, but we got to go. This would have been an incredibly difficult conversation. So he, he pleads his case about why he needs to go now. He says, I've been a good worker for your dad, but he's a crook. He's exploited me time and time again. He's changed my wages ten times, but never given me a raise. A raise. And we made a deal that I would get all the multicolored sheep, but then he went and took them all away from the flock, so I had nothing. And it's very clear that your father is not for us, but he is against us. And then he goes on to say, the angel of the Lord came to me in a dream and told me to go. Now, Jacob is saying, this is the same God that I met at Bethel. This is the same God that, that showed me a dream that heaven was close to me. He's the same God that showed me the ladder and angels moving up and down. And this, the angel of the Lord, I believe, is the pre-incarnate Jesus telling him to go back to the land where he came from. And through this conversation, it's laced with evidences of how God has been changing Jacob's heart. Um, he's remembering the promise from 28, from chapter 28. He's remembering that the God, of the God of his father, Isaac, would be with him. He's remembering that God did not, would not permit any harm to fall upon him. He's remembering that God had taken from Laban and given to me, given to him. He's realizing that all of these events that have been going on have less to do with him and more to do with God. God was the one who was keeping me safe. It's not my hard work that's kept me in, in good graces. It's God who's kept those people from harming me. It's not, it wasn't my stupid sticks that made speckled and spotted animals. It was God himself who, who created those animals. And now we're starting to see how he's leading his family in a godly way. He's trying to get them to follow him as he follows God. Now, men, are you leading your families in a way that follows God? Are you having those difficult conversations with your wife and with your kids? Those, those conversations that get to the heart level. To see where are you not believing that God is gracious. To have those conversations to encourage them and, and push them into belief of the gospel. Men, are you living a life that takes big risks for God? Well, you need to be. You need to be. You need to be shepherding hearts. You need to be shepherding the hearts of those who God has entrusted to you so that they may see the gospel as glorious, that they may see God as a, a, a good heavenly father. And men, you need to be taking risks 
and pursuing God in a radical way because Jesus has radically pursued you. Let's go to verse 14. Now we see the lady's response. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion of inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said, you, whatever God has said to you, do. So Jacob, uh, excuse me, Rachel and Leah agree to go. They agree with Jacob that my dad, he is the worst. He has treated us poorly. He treats us as if we're aliens. He treats us as we're slaves, that, that he sold us, and he's devoured all the money that should be ours. And so he's, they, they are willing to follow their husband's lead, even when they have no idea what's going to happen next. Women, are you following the lead of your husband when they step up to lead? Are you, or are you being critical about the way they do it? Are you supporting, loving, and encourage them as they step up as the leaders of the household and take steps to lead you in, in your walk with Jesus? Wives, please, please let your husbands lead you as they submit themselves to Christ. Let's go to, to verse 17 here. So Jacob... <clears throat> Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all the livestock, all his property that he gained, and the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padanaram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban, the Aramine, not to let him, uh, not, by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had, and he rose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told, uh, when it was told Laban, when it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days, and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream that night and said to him. Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Jacob found an opportune time to leave, and he took it while Laban was out shearing his sheep. And Jacob knew he was following God. Jacob knew that God had told him to go, and so he, he set his face toward the land that God had promised him. Jacob didn't really know what was going to lie ahead. He had no idea. He didn't know if his brother, the one that he stole the birthright from, was still mad at him and still wanted his blood. He didn't know if there was going to be peace in the land. He didn't know if there was going to be enough, um, enough of the land to sustain his whole family. But he was sure that almost anything would be better than staying with his selfish father-in-law boss. All he knew was that God was telling him to go. And so he set his face toward Gilead. Now we see here Rachel, <clears throat> well, Jacob is doing good. He's following God. Rachel has a little bit of an episode here. She goes behind her husband's back and steals her father's household gods. Now, scholars don't really know what she was trying to do when she took these. Um, but I've got, I've got an opinion here. But I think, it's, I think it's the idea of following Jacob's God into unknown territory was scary for her. 
So she wanted to have the gods that she grew up with as a backup god in case the real god failed her. In case the real God failed her, she wanted a backup plan. We do the same thing, right? We do the same thing. Whether it be with what we do with our lives, like, I feel like God's calling me here, but just in case, I'm going to have this backup plan. We do the same thing uh, when it comes to our money, when it comes to tithing. You know, we, we, we get our paycheck, and it's like, God, I know, I know I could make it this month if I gave you a tenth of what I made. But I'm going to hold on to it until the end of the month. Just in case you don't give me adequate provisions. Because we are sinners, we all have some reservations to the extent of of how we follow God wholeheartedly. We always, it's easy for us to doubt the goodness and faithfulness of God. But God, God has always proven himself faithful. And our backup plan is always flawed. And it always lets us down. Laban here, he finds out that they left town um, and he was enraged. He was angry that they took off without telling him. And he started to hunt down Jacob. And, and on his rage-filled journey, God spoke to him in a dream. He tells, he tells Laban, don't say anything good or bad to Jacob. Do not hurt him. Now, in this moment, we see God's sovereignty and how he is not only sovereign over the the ones that he has called to himself, but he's sovereign over those who are far from God. He speaks to a man who is caught up in a life of voodoo witchcraft magic and tells him not to do anything to him. It's, It's great. Let's go to verse 25. And Laban, <clears throat> Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched the tents in the hill of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done <clears throat> that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me? And why not tell me so that I might have sent you away with myrrh and songs and with tambourine and, and lyre? And why do you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. Laban, right here, is full of himself. He's full of it. He's in complete denial about how how wicked he is. He's saying, why are you treating me like a selfish boss? I'm not that guy. Why are you acting like I'm a bad father? And why are you acting like I'm a, a bad grandfather? I love my kids. He's saying, I am not that bad. I would have thrown you a going away party. We'd had a parade. We got some tambourine. Got a good band. It would have been fun. I would have blessed you when you left. I would have kissed you and sent you on your way. We see here Laban. Laban is blind to how greed and envy has turned his heart into a heart of stone. But it's obvious to those around him who love him and who know him, know him who he really is. That he's really a wicked man. And so Laban continues on here in in 29. He says, it is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? 
And Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of your kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent, into Leah's tent, into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now, Laban here just contradicts everything he just said about being a good guy. He said, I'm a good guy, I'm a good guy. But man, I, I can hurt you right now. I can put it to you. Laban's true colors are showing through. But he says, the only reason why I'm not going to harm you is because your God told me not to. And then he goes on to say, why did you steal my gods? Why did you steal my household gods? Laban, by searching through the campground, we see that he's more grieved about losing his trinkets and figurines than losing his family. And Jacob responds to him truthfully, you really are that bad. You've been mean to me the whole time. You, I, I was convinced that you were going to use force to keep us here against our will. And, and Jacob shows no care for Laban's household gods. He said, tear apart our campground. Look for them. If anybody finds them, we'll kill that person. And here's another evidence that, that God has been working in Jacob's heart to reveal that God, the God of his fathers, is the only God. So Jacob has no need for Laban's household gods. He lets Laban tear apart their campgrounds and destroy everything looking for his gods. 34. <clears throat> now Rachel <clears throat> had taken the household gods and put them in the camel saddle and sat on them. And Laban felt all about the tent but did not find them. And she said to her father... <clears throat> Let my Lord not be angry, or let, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find his household gods. Now, right here, this is intended to be a comedy. This is funny here. It's pure bathroom humor. For the first time in the history of mankind, woman uses the excuse, I can't, it's my time of the month. And since then, it's been perfected, I think. And honestly, guys don't mess with that. Guys don't mess with that. If a lady says something like that, no more questions asked. He's like, okay, I'm going this way. And we see here, Laban, Laban would rather take her word for it and not find his household gods than have her stand up and search where she's been sitting. Now, I think there's, there's a reason why this is in, in the text. There's, there's a reason why this is included, this bathroom humor. Moses is the one who's writing this. Um, and he's writing it to the Israelites as they're out wandering um, in the wilderness. And he, he's, tell, um, he's trying to show the Israelites that any other God besides the God of the Bible cannot save you. He's showing us that Laban's gods are completely obsolete. He's showing us that, that any other God other than the God of the Bible is the equivalent of a maxi pad. Now, I've got a couple of good guidelines, I think. Um, you'll have to let me know what you think. Um, good guidelines of when it comes to what you worship. Um, the first one is if you can hide your God in a trunk, you need a bigger God. 
Number two, if, if your God cannot save you because you're sitting on it, you need a stronger God. And number three, if you can menstruate on your God, you need a more holy God. Laban's God breaks all three of these guidelines. He, he just needs a better God. If our God is anything but the God of the Bible, we are in the same sinking ship that Laban was in. The God of the Bible is the only God who can save us. He's the only one that can completely fulfill his promises. He's the only one who can adopt us into his family. The only one who can bless us. And he's the only one that can give dead things life. God fulfills all of his promises by sending us Jesus Christ to come and save us. Jesus is the one who saves us by grace through faith. Jesus lived the life we couldn't live and died the death we deserved. And then he defeated sin, death, and the grave. It's by Jesus' life and death we are made right with God. And it's by Jesus' resurrection that we have the power to live like that is true. Laban had opportunities to respond to God in faith. But he would rather serve his false gods and perish than put his faith in the only God who is mighty to save. When we put our faith... In the God of the Bible, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, He saves us from sin and death. Verse 36. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all of my goods. What have you found in all of my what have you found of all your household goods? See it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flock. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or by night. There I was, by day in the heat consumed me, the cold and the cold by night. And my, sh- and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house, I have served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock. And you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, the the daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flock. And all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these, my daughters, or for these children whom they have born? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness to you and me. Now Jacob has had it with Laban here. He blows up. He couldn't take the abuse. He couldn't take the mistreatment any longer. He's put up with it for too long. 20 years of dealing with this. So he goes off on him. What have I ever done wrong? I I never stole from you. He says, I've been with you for the long haul. I've put in long hours. I've lost sleep over my work. Because of my care, your livestock has flourished. I've not stolen from you. And any losses, I've taken out of my own paycheck. In fact, you've actually required it from me. I've worked 14 years for your daughters, and you say that they're really not my, do- that they're really not my wife. 
And I've worked six years for the small amount of livestock that I've got from you. And you don't think that I deserve it. Jacob says here, if it were not for my God seeing me in my affliction, you would leave me with nothing. If it were not for God's rebuke that you had last night in your dream, you would be harming me. And Laban, he responds just like you would expect. He's, he says, he's still this greedy old man. He says, those daughters, they're my daughters. They're not your wives. That flock, that's not your flock. That's my flock. And everything you have, that's not yours. That's mine. He still has an incredibly selfish posture. Laban would rather flourish as an individual than see his family flourish. And we see it in the rest of the chapter of 31. We see Jacob and Laban make a covenant to never cause harm to one another. Essentially, it's, I won't cross this line if you don't cross this line. And we'll be good. And then they part ways. Now, we had a lot of ground to cover. That was a whole scripture reading. Um, But I think there's some very important lessons that we can learn from this. The story is very clear that Jacob has been under affliction for the last 20 years as he worked for a selfish, greedy, mean, crook of a boss. He got tricked into marrying Leah when he was supposed to marry Rachel. Um, Laban changes his pay 10 times. It's never a raise. And Laban won't give Jacob what he earned. Laban is simply a cruel, selfish, and greedy man. It's just an overall bad situation. And in this time of Jacob's suffering and affliction under the rule of his evil father-in-law, it is apparent that God has been at work in Jacob's heart. We're seeing, excuse me, we're seeing some of Jacob's character flaws being ironed out here. The deceiver, the one who stole the birthright, is now a man of good integrity. The guy who is never satisfied is now walking away with only a very small portion and he's satisfied with it. A guy who didn't have a God has come to know the only God. And as he gets to know God more and more, Jacob starts to imitate him. Jacob's faith in God is spilling over into his relationships and his work life. What he believes, what Jacob believes about God is directly affecting his actions. And we see this. He's starting to lead his family in a godly way. He begins to evangelize to those who don't know God. He becomes a long-suffering and patient, honest worker. And the only way that Jacob could keep plugging along with these things, in these difficult circumstances, with this integrity, is if if he believed these three things. One... He had to believe that God would stay faithful to his promise and that God would reward him for his efforts. Two, two, Jacob had to believe that his work had purpose because it was a calling from God. Number three, Jacob had to believe that Jacob's boss really wasn't his boss and his job really wasn't his job. Now, let me explain what I mean here. Jacob had to remember that God is faithful to his promises and that God would reward those who who follow God and are faithful to him. God promised Jacob in chapter 28. He says, I will be with you and I will keep you. I will bring you back to this land of your fathers and you, you will be blessed. That there will be a reward for your efforts. 
Jacob had to believe these things. He had to, to, to stay faithful to those things that God had told him. And he had faith that God was looking out for him, even in those difficult times. Now, whatever your circumstances are, whether you have a, a, a bad boss, um, you have a hard project you're working on at work, or you're working with difficult coworkers, God is using it to show you that he is faithful even in the hard times. We must believe that all things are working together for the good of those who love God. And Jacob also knew that he was going to be rewarded. He knew that God would bless him. And Ephesians 6 says that, that people who follow God's will, people do, do what God requires. Whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord. As we follow where God is leading us, as we follow God's will and do good by him, he will reward us. And I'm not trying to pitch you that, that you'll be more successful, that you're going to have a, you're going to get a promotion. You're not going to get that Cadillac. I mean, you might. That's what I'm not trying to tell you here. I'm telling you that your reward is not on this side of eternity. How God will reward you is that when you, when you move on from this life, when, when you fade away or Jesus comes home, comes to bring us home, you will be rewarded with the riches that Jesus has inherited for us. This is the promise that we have to cling to. We must remember that in our efforts, in our, in our troubles and afflictions, in our time of, of difficulty, that God will reward us as we do his will. Now, Jacob also had to remember that his calling, that his work was a calling and it had eternal purpose. All work is a calling. Whatever you're doing is a calling. The accountant's job is just as sacred as a pastor's job. The plumber's job is just as sacred as a missionary. The student's work is just as sacred as the Bible counselor. The, the CEO executive's work is just as sacred as a social activist's work. Everyone has a calling. God has gifted each one of us in a way where we can serve our employer in society by doing that work faithfully. And what does that look like? Well, Ephesians 6 says to work with a sincere heart. Be passionate about what you're doing because God has put you there. We must remember that all of our jobs have purpose. And that purpose is to show others what God is like. Our purpose is that we should uh, show, what, show others what God is like. The way that we work shows the people that we work with and the people that we work for, what we believe about God. And in doing that, we demonstrate the love of God. We demonstrate the long-suffering of Jesus. We demonstrate the patience and the compassion that Jesus has shown to us. And number three, your boss is not really your boss and your job is not really your job. What I mean by that is your boss here on earth isn't really your boss. He's, got, he's very limited in his power. He's very limited in, in what he can do. But God, our Father... He is our true boss. He is the one that rules over all things. He's not a mean boss, but God is a compassionate, a loving, and a kind boss who would lay his life down for his own workers. Now, how many of you have bosses like that? How many of you have, have earthly bosses that would lay his life down for you? Not very many of us. They're very rare. But we, our true boss, is a boss that would lay his life down for his workers. And we know that... And when we know that we work for a God like that, we are more willing to sacrifice our own wants and desires and work hard in response 
to what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. Now keep in mind, as you work, you are not working for the approval of your earthly boss. When you work, you are working out of the approval that Jesus has accomplished by his hard work of bearing the cross on our behalf. And when we stop believing that, one of two things happens. One, we either sinfully overwork, we work harder and harder, it becomes an idol for us to get the approval from either God or of man, and we try to find our value and our worth in what we can do for them. Or when we forgot, forget what Jesus has done for us, we either overwork or we sinfully underwork because we forget that Jesus worked hard to the point of death, to earn our wages of righteousness. We also need to keep in mind that our our job is not our real job. And what what our real job is, is not about what we're doing. A real job is about who we are making. Jesus left us with the Great Commission, greater than any commission that we can receive here on earth, greater than uh, a commission from, from NASA, greater than a commission from the president himself, greater than... Commission, whatever you can think of, the commission that Jesus left us with is the best commission that we could have. It's to go and make disciples. And when we, when we are working, when we are working like we believe the gospel, we work wholeheartedly for our heavenly boss. We will work wholeheartedly for our earthly boss. And as we do that, disciples are made. Our real job, what we're called to do, what our real job is, is to tell And remind others of the saving grace that God has shown us by sending his one and only son to die for us and to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's our job. That's what we're supposed to do. No matter what we're doing, whether you're you're working for John Deere, whether you're working for um, Handicap Development Center, wherever you're working, working for the hospital, whatever you're doing, your primary job is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And as we remember these three things... As we remember that, that we work knowing that God is faithful to his promises and that he will reward us for our efforts. And as we work knowing that, that what you are doing is a calling and it has significant purpose. And as we work knowing that God is our boss and our mission is to make disciples, that is our true job. And we start to work like Jacob. We start to be men and women of integrity. We, we work hard, not for the approval of man, but we work hard out of the approval that, that Jesus has given us in, in the gospel. Now, Jacob, by no means, did this perfectly. He made tons of mistakes. He didn't always believe um, that God was going to be faithful to his promises. He often took things into his own hands when he should have turned them over to God in prayer. He frequently looks to other things to satisfy him other than God. There are times where he didn't believe his work was for God. And there are times when he worked for the approval of man rather than knowing that the Lord approved of him because God is gracious. And we are just like Jacob. We we, we often forget those things. We can't do it perfectly. We either sinfully overwork or we sinfully underwork. We forget that we work for a caring and loving God. We forget that what we do has purpose. And we forget those things often. This is why we need Jesus. Jesus always knew that God was faithful. Jesus came to this earth knowing 
where he would end up. Where Jacob set his face to Gilead with uncertainty about what would would happen next, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, knowing that he would be nailed to a tree for the sins of man. And on the third day, he would be raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of the Father, making a way for us to be made right with God. And so that we could be rewarded through the works of Christ, that we would be co-heirs with Christ. The gospel, this, is why we work hard and why we work faithfully. We do this because Jesus did the hard work of paying for our sins and giving us new life by staying faithful to God's plan. Believe the gospel. Believe this is true. Believe that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection made you right with God and live like it's true Because the resurrection proves God's power over sin and death. We must work hard for the glory of God. Heavenly Father, I thank you for what Jesus has done. I thank you, God, that that you have been gracious to us, that you are the one who has kept us, that you are the one who who has made us flourish, that you have been gracious and merciful to us. I thank you, God, for your son, Jesus, and how he was able to stay faithful to your will. I thank you, God, that he was able to, to finish the work, God, of, of, of purchasing us from sin and death. Father God, I'm, I'm even more thankful for the life that you offer us now because of the resurrection. I thank you, God, that we live in new identities, that we live in the identity of a, of a beloved son and daughter, that we live in the identity of an approved worker, God, that we don't have to work and toil for that because Jesus himself has worked and toiled for that on our behalf. Father God, I pray that as we approach the table, I pray, God, that we would, that we would remember how hard Jesus worked, that, that he was, his blood was spilled, that he, he suffered for us, that he, he was willing to finish it out so that we may be called sons and daughters, God. We thank you for the gospel. We pray, Lord, that this would sink into our hearts, affect the way that we live, affect the way that we, we lead our families, affect the way that we go to work, affect the, the attitude we have towards our boss, affect the way that we do the responsibilities that we're given, God, that we may do it for your glory and in it that you may make us like you, that you may save us more and more, that we may become just like Jesus, God, and that you would get the glory in that. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.